This podcast was recorded on Monday, August 26, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or change. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have another returning champion, Brent Stallings, portfolio manager here at DoubleLine. Welcome, Brent. Nice to be here. All right. Well, given you have a very strong background in the equity world, I wanted to kind of get your take on where things are looking today and what you're reading from the trade action you see, earnings, and just in general, what the stock market looks like here in the U.S., especially relative to the rest of the world. Yeah. The thing that's really, I think, been striking about the U.S. equity markets here recently is just the divergence between U.S. equities and basically all other risk markets around the world just sending a really divergent signal, which whenever you see markets send very divergent signals, I think it is of interest and you really have to pay attention. So in the case of equities, you know, as we sit here today, we're roughly 5% off of the recent high, all-time high in the S&P 500. So if you watch CNBC, it sounds like basically the sky's falling, the world's ending. But at the end of the day, a 5% move off of an all-time high in an equity market is really not that significant. It's really just noise. Right. So is it the plunge protection teams come in or what's going on there? Well, that may very well be the case. The proverbial, whenever the market goes down a little bit, the policymakers and the Fed step in to point us back in the right direction, kind of like we saw back in December. S&P just kissed that 20%, down 20% off of its high, and here comes Powell. So when you're thinking about valuation today, Brent, what are you looking at in the equity market? You said there's a divergence out there uh, in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. What's going on in terms of valuation metrics that you're looking at? Yeah, the most significant valuation metric that we watch is the CAPE ratio, really for a couple of reasons. One is academically it's and in practice, it's been shown to be one of the best long-term tools for evaluating really what forward returns look like for the market. Second reason is that you're at double line. Obviously, we've used the CAPE ratio as a basis for two of our equity strategies, including our largest, our flagship equity strategy. It's another way of saying we care a lot about the CAPE ratio here, but we also think it has a lot of merit. Okay. So explain why you believe and why we believe it has merit. Why don't I start just with sort of defining what the CAPE ratio is? Cyclically adjusted PE ratio. The traditional PE ratio is the price of a stock or a sector index or a market index relative to the earnings for that particular stock or index. Basically tells you how many years of earnings you're paying for when you buy a particular security. The weakness of traditional PE analysis is that it looks at a really narrow window of earnings. Usually when you calculate a PE, you're looking at current year's earnings, you're looking at forward 12 months or maybe next fiscal year. But whichever of those you're looking at, it's a really narrow window. And the simple fact is earnings are cyclical and you go through periods where 
companies and sectors and markets will over-earn relative to trend, meaning their earnings are well above the trend line, periods where they under-earn, where the earnings are below the trend line. So if you look at really just a narrow one-year worth of earnings, it's going to lead, it can lead you astray. It's funny, actually. A colleague of ours showed us a, one of our company retreats put up a, a Wall Street Journal article from 1911, I think it was, where the Wall Street Journal says, you really have to smooth out your earnings over a longer period of time. And Graham and Dodd, in their famous book, brought up this concept as well, saying you got to look at at least five, more like seven to 10 years worth of earnings to get an accurate measure. Let me cut you off there, because as you talk about that, the idea behind that five, seven, 10, or whatever the number is, is that I think the premise was that you should analyze the company through a business cycle. That's the whole idea is that where you're at in the cycle matters in terms of valuation, but you should value it throughout the entire cycle. But do we even have business cycles anymore? Here we are in year 10 since the financial crisis. We're talking jokingly about punch protection teams. We're talking about Powell puts, central bank puts around the world. Does it even matter anymore now that we're seeing these business cycles act longer? Yeah. Well, I think that it does. And you're right. It's cyclical. That's the C and the CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Cycles do matter. They matter for the overall market. Look, granted, we are now 10 years into an expansion. On the other hand, the last contraction was a particularly deep one. So as much as, well, I was reading uh, Powell's speech at Jackson Hole, and he talked about the great moderation. Well, the great moderation was then followed by basically the deepest recession since the Great Depression, and now 10 years of a long expansion. So the amplitude of the cycles may be changing, but we still have we still have cycles. So it still matters. So give us some context about the CAPE ratio today. Where are we? How does it look relative to history? What's it signaling to you from a valuation standpoint today when we look at it in the US market and then also it's extended out globally? So where we're at today on the CAPE ratio is 29. How do we get to that math? Or more specifically, how does Professor Robert Schiller, who publishes this on his website, How does he get to the math? So it's taking, instead of one year's worth of earnings, it's taking the last 10 years worth of earnings for the S&P and then adjusting those for inflation. So essentially inflating the earlier years in that time period so that you have kind of a real earnings uh, earnings stream. And then comparing that in the case of the S&P, comparing to that to the price of the S&P today. So you have 10 years inflation-adjusted earnings relative to the current price tells you where the S&P 500's valuation is today compared to sort of a full cycle worth of earnings. You get to 29. What does 29 What does 29 mean? To put some bands around that, you roll back to the Great Depression and the PE, the CAPE ratio was about five. So the equity market is six times more <laughs> overvalued than in the Great Depression. Exactly. Or it was one-sixth the price back in the Great Depression. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let's bookmark that because I want to come back to your comment about it being overvalued because I think embedded in that, I think it's a really important idea when you think about the CAPE ratio. But to start with, just to put some bands around this a little bit. So five at the low end during the Great Depression, there was another period in the early 20s when it got below five, got into the mid fours. There are two times in history when the CAPE ratio has been at this level or higher. The first of those was for a very brief period. I believe it was about four months back before the 1927 crash. And then the other was- Before it went down to that five number, right? Is what you're saying, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
And the other period was right before, or actually starting in 97 in the lead up to the dot-com era. So there you had an extended four-year period where PE ratios, or rather CAPE ratios, were at this level or higher. So being statistically minded like we are here at Double Line, we have a sample size of two. Maybe it's a sample size of three because of the current period, but we don't know how this one's going to end. Sample size of two. In one of those cases, the 1920s investors promptly lost a major portion of their money. And in the other instance, in the late 90s, you saw the market go up about another 50% before investors promptly lost a large portion of their money. So if you equally weight those being likely since we're sample size of two, you have essentially about a zero return on average. Exactly, exactly. But the average doesn't really tell you how the wealth right. moves, but yeah. And if only we all had lifespans where we could invest in careers where we could invest long enough to encompass both of those, yeah, right? right, exactly. The point being that these large events come around infrequently. Right. So you're at 29 today, and it's been north of 29 for how long? It's been at least like a year or two, right? It's been north of this. Uh, Yeah, we're about two years into uh, into these levels. Okay. So for the last two years, it's been giving you the same signal, but equity returns have been pretty strong over the last two years. In fact, in the last two years, I think it's up roughly like 20% per annum in that two-year period, roughly, right? Um. Yeah, since since 14, we've compounded a little over 10%. Part of that's because the last year, with a lot of volatility, we've been roughly Roughly uh, flattish. Flat, right? But when you think about it, too, you're going back 10 years. So if we just go back in time, as we sit here in 2019, your CAPE ratio is encompassing really 2009. And so what does that tell you about essentially the earnings deterioration we had in the 08 example the CAPE ratio is slightly higher as that's rolled off a little bit. But what was the magnitude of that roll-off during the financial crisis of those earnings? What would that really do to the CAPE ratio? Because I think a lot of people think that the CAPE ratio is distorted massively or was distorted massively due to the deterioration of earnings in the financial crisis of 08. Yeah, certainly that's a pretty prevalent view out there. You're correct in your comment that the worst of those earnings have already rolled off. The earnings troughed in the first quarter of 2009. So we've rolled that 10-year calculation window has rolled the worst, but we still are picking up what were depressed earnings in the latter part of 2009 and really rolling into the next couple of years after that. It's been argued that we really need to adjust the CAPE ratio because of the depths of that earnings recession. That earnings recession was so much deeper. I mean, your earnings went down over 90% for the S&P, went down over 90% peak to trough, which is quite a bit more than sort of your typical 30% kind of post-war earnings decline for the S&P 500. Now, I have a problem with that argument and- Well, tell us about your problem. Actually, I have two problems. Can I tell you about both my problems? Please, we're here. We may have to get a couch for you, but for now, let's work it out. Thanks to our listeners for listening to both the problems. The first is really sort of theoretical. To argue that you should adjust those earnings because it was an extreme event, you're basically falling into the same behavioral trap, the CAPE ratio that Schiller's analysis is trying to lead you out of. And I guess the theory behind that is, if you look over the long term, you end up with a lot of outlier events. By definition, you have a lot of outlier events. Think about our conversation that we've had already. We've talked about the great moderation, which was an outlier event for being so calm and the low level of volatility in GDP. We had the global financial crisis, the biggest recession since the Great Depression. And now here we have a historically long period of economic expansion. So all of a sudden, we've talked about really the last 
15 years of economic history, and we've talked about three outlier events. The point being, maybe they're not, right? Maybe outlier events are more common, common, right? right? So that's the way of saying when you start trying to pick out one outlier event and say, let's adjust the numbers for this one, again, you're falling exactly into that behavioral trap where Schiller is saying, no, you need to look at a full cycle, at least a full cycle. That's why he picked 10 years to be sure to capture at least one full cycle, if not more than that. You need to look at a full cycle. So you capture those, I'm going to do air quotes, you can't see them on the podcast, right? The outlier, the outlier. I've always found it interesting, the idea behind getting rid of some negative event. It's the old joke we use around the trading desk. If you took out all the securities in the portfolio that had a negative return over the last year, we'd be up. Right, exactly. Right, And so it's very arbitrary. But in my thinking, you nailed it. It's talking about the behavioral aspect. It's this inherent bias because you want to love the equity market. You want to love the PE ratio. You just can't get your mind around that it's not giving you the exact signal perhaps you're looking for. Exactly. Do you hear anyone right now in the commentariat saying, wow, we're 10 years into the longest sustained economic expansion in U.S. history, maybe we should really adjust the CAPE ratio higher. Right. No, I haven't heard that. People only want to... I did see GDP now today came out at 2.3% too. So GDP seems to be ratcheting higher, but you wouldn't hear that from the narrative that's going on right now. And then you hear the narrative too that because the GDP is such a lagged variable that it's not capturing all the crisis and the negativity we're seeing out there too. So I think those stories are important though when you think about it is that People want to rationalize their portfolio positioning. So give me the second thing that you have right. a problem so, with. Right. So the first is sort of the theory and don't fall into the behavioral trap that Schiller is, that the analysis is trying to keep you from falling into. The second is just really much more practical. And that's, it doesn't actually make that much of a difference for your CAPE ratio. Okay. So Brent, what is the impact of the earnings from 2008, the roll-off? What would that have done to the CAPE ratio if you had a normalized recession Let's say, what would the CAPE ratio look like two years ago, one year ago, and today? Right. So again, as we talked about, the worst of the earnings from the global financial crisis have rolled off. So if we look at the CAPE ratio, the recent peak in the CAPE ratio was about 32. So that's when the CAPE ratio was sort of feeling the maximum impact from that 09 earnings recession. So we're down from that 32 level, but even at 29, we're still at a level that's only seen less than 5% of the time in the CAPE ratio over its entire history. So we're still in a kind of a 5% most expensive time period from a CAPE ratio standpoint. So what the analysis that we did then is we went back and we sort of looked at what the CAPE ratio would look like today had that earnings recession been different, had it not been as severe. For instance, if it had been just your plain vanilla 30% decline in the S&P 500, if that were the case, you'd have a CAPE ratio today of 27. Okay. Now you're saying that the price, the S&P went down 30% or earnings only declined? Earnings went. So I just want to clarify. Exactly. That's an important point. So if earnings had only got, instead of earnings going down 95%, if earnings had only gone down by 30%. Again, just a kind of a normal run-of-the-mill recession. So your CAPE ratio is 27, still at a very elevated point and still roughly 5% among the 5% most expensive CAPE ratios over the time period. So then we said, okay, let's just adjust it down to 25. Let's say it was even kind of a, a milder recession. You take it down to 25. And when you say 25, it's a 25%, 25% decline, decline, decline from the peak. And you're still around 27. You've gone from 27.4 to 27.2 
on your CAPE ratio, right? So what's all the ado here? Like, why is everybody so animated about this story about, well, it's so distorted due to this deep earnings recession? Well, two reasons. First is it goes back to just that behavioral idea that there was this event that's very strong in everyone's mind and feels like it was an unusual event and we need to adjust it. But this goes back to really the robustness of the CAPE ratio. Even if you adjust this outlier event, it really doesn't make that much of a difference in the conclusion. It's just one data point in the mix of everything that goes into the calculation. Exactly. When you smooth it over 10 years, this is exactly what happened. In fact, we took the recession out. We assumed that earnings basically went flat, that there was no global financial crisis, there was no recession at all, which is clearly just an absurd assumption. Well, if you didn't start investing until 2010, maybe it's okay. Right, exactly. What recession? And even at that, you get a CAPE ratio of 26. So it still is elevated, still quite elevated relative to uh, to historical standards. So- I mean, how do people use this CAPE ratio in making decisions? Like as an asset allocator, as someone who's thinking about how much exposure I should have to the equity market today, how does something like the CAPE ratio or some other valuation metric come into play when trying to make those decisions? This really, it goes back to the earlier conversation that we were having about the market being quote unquote overvalued or undervalued. It's a lot of people, their first take with the CAPE ratio is they want to use it to come up with a conclusion that the equity market is overvalued or that it's undervalued or to use it as a market timing technique. And it's actually not terribly effective to time the market short term. And it's frankly not really even designed to give you a conclusion whether the market's overvalued or undervalued. What it really does, what its true effectiveness is as a tool for assessing forward-looking market returns. So as an asset allocator, which is a very important question an asset allocator needs to answer, what are my expectations for the different asset classes that I allocate across over the next 10 years? That's really going to drive a lot of your asset allocation decisions, and you need to approach that with a clear mind. In the case of the CAPE ratio, it's very useful because its real purpose is to assess forward-looking, 10-year forward-looking market returns that's where the power is. So it doesn't tell you what the market's going to do over the next year, but what the historical evidence with the CAPE ratio would indicate is that as you today, as we allocate assets today, we need to look at the equity market as earning below average, below historical average returns over the next 10 years. In fact, probably low single digits. The right the expectation that the CAPE ratio is leading you to is low single-digit equity market returns per year over the next 10 years. Yeah. What I've seen is it's something about 3.5-4% real. So that's above inflation over the next 10 years or so. That's kind of what the implications of this CAPE ratio being around 27 is today. Yeah. I was going to agree. And I recall actually hearing it from Professor Schiller that he said right around the the 30 mark is looking at right around 3.5% real return per annum over the next 10 years. So definitely within that forward-looking expectation. But in talking with folks, a lot of the times we hear the criticism that there's a number of criticisms that we can choose. And oftentimes we hear that people think that the CAPE ratio is actually way too low given where we are in the current marketplace. They think that it could actually be higher current market conditions like perhaps lower yields or lower discount rates could actually lead to a CAPE ratio of 45, let's say. Let's pick a number out there on the ratio. What are some of your responses to that or thoughts around that? I agree. There are a lot of arguments that are making their way into the financial media around this. 
Some of them deal with the level of interest rates and the argument that with interest rates as low as they are around the world, that that just argues for higher equity market valuations. So what does a negative yield imply for equity valuations? I know zero is supposed to, in this kind of world, zero discount rate means an infinite number. I don't know how to get my mind around a negative discount rate. You know, in in graduate school, I must not have taken advanced enough math classes to do DCFs. Using negative discount rates seems like you quickly get to infinite valuations quickly, which is absurd. Well, the absolute negative yields has also turned the financial world into the bizarro world where people look for bonds for capital appreciation. They look to the S&P, which right now has a dividend yield of roughly two, two, so higher than that of the 10-year treasury today. It's they're looking for that for dividends or income, right? So right. But negative interest rates aside, back to the substance of the argument, I mean, yeah, it's finance 101 that as you lower your discount rate on your future cash flows, and that's why you own equities is for the future cash flows from the underlying businesses, as you lower your discount rate, your present value of those cash flows is greater. Pretty basic math. But let's go back to the conversation we had about the purpose of the CAPE ratio. Again, the purpose of the CAPE ratio is to help you assess what your forward 10-year expectations, return expectations should be for the equity market. So what happens when you own an equity and you lower the discount rate? You are lowering the return hurdle for that equity going forward. So that's another way of saying it's completely valid to say that when interest rates are low, that that may lead to a higher multiple on stocks because that discount rate is lower. But it also means that you should expect going forward substantially lower returns from equities than you got in the past. You don't get your cake and eat it too. You don't get a lower discount rate and higher returns in the future. That reminds me of a story. I want to give a little anecdote here. We had some younger investment professionals and they were starting to look at the T-bill market. And this is last year. These were relatively green folks. And what they were doing is they said, well, look, you can buy six-month T-bills. They yield like two and a quarter annualized yield. And so it's how it's quoted. And so they're like, well, look, if you took that and you bought it, you get two and a quarter for six months. Then you get two and a quarter again when you reinvest it. <laughs> we got four and a half now. That's way better than the bond. And so I let them down the line of thinking. I'm like, well, if you like that, just think about the one-month T-bill, right? Because you can get that and you can reinvest it 12 times. So uh, you got to make sure you know how things are quoted around here too. So again, these were young analysts. We're training them. So again, there's not people touching money yet. but They've been re-educated. They've been re-educated. And again, now they're going to know that I exposed them on the podcast. So uh, shout out to them. So I've heard the, the argument about lower yields implies kind of higher valuation. Some of it makes some sense, but it's hard to rationalize some of the extreme valuations you see in certain segments of the market. But there's also been a lot of criticism from another academic out there. Was he the Wizard of Wharton, I think they call him, or I don't know what they call Professor Siegel out there. So let's talk about his criticism's been accounting rules of change. He talks about NIPA versus S&P profits. Maybe you can go into both those arguments separately. Let's start with the accounting changes. So What's the criticism from Professor Siegel, and what are ultimately the implications of that analysis? Yeah, so Professor Siegel's argument is that because of some accounting changes in the 90s and the early aughts that require companies to write down impaired assets, those accounting changes have increased the volatility of S&P 500 earnings and really increased the volatility to the downside. 
So what that means is when you go through a period like 2009, that's the best example of this, that that requirement to impair those assets, to take those impairments through your income statement, to reduce your earnings by them when times are tough, lead to earnings being lower than they otherwise would be and lower than they were prior to the accounting changes. So I guess that's a, another way of Siegel saying that since the 90s, S&P 500 earnings have been understated relative to what the trend line would have been before that. And so the implication of the earnings being understated is? The implication is when you look at the last 10 years worth of earnings to calculate your CAPE ratio, if those earnings are understated, your CAPE ratio is overstated. Therefore, I was about to say equities look overvalued. Really, your forward-looking 10-year returns look understated by that math. From a guy who wrote a book called Stocks for the Long Run. Exactly. No disrespect there, just pointing it out. No disrespect. You have to respect the eternal optimism. I think at one point, Professor Siegel did say that stocks look almost fairly valued. At one point during the cycle here, he said that. So so let's talk about NIPA. Define what NIPA profits are versus S&P profits and why should someone care? And I know you've done a lot of work on this too recently, just looking at the differences. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So NIPA profits, these are the profits that come out of the, really the national account statistics, basically the GDP. When we get the GDP report on a quarterly basis, plus the various updates and looks over the course of the quarter, the statistics that are prepared by the Department of Commerce, everyone in the financial world looks closely at, kind of buried down in the tables of those GDP reports are the NIPA profits. And these really represent the profits for all businesses that are part of the U.S. economy. And again, these are statisticians. They slice and dice these a bunch of different ways. They can show you what non-financial domestic companies look like. They can show you what all domestic companies look like throw in foreign earnings. You can look at it after tax, before tax. So it's really a pretty robust set of data. But it's reported with a big lag though, right? It takes time for that data to be calculated and hence it's not very contemporaneous, correct? There's that issue. Absolutely. It is done with a lag. Number two, it is updated several times during the quarter, right? Remember, we get the first look at the GDP the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is within the Commerce Department, they do the first report, and then you get another revision, and then you get another revision. And then what they end up doing is they go back and they revise previous years. So we've just had, actually, last month, we had what was a very significant revision to the last several years of GDP data as well. So for us in the financial world, where we really need high-frequency data, it's very difficult to make real-time decisions based on this, again, because of the reporting lag and the fact that even once it's reported, you don't know if it, it might get revised a month later or a year later. But having said that, it's a really a useful set of data looking at long-term trends because it's gathered in a very consistent way over time. And unlike S&P earnings, it's really not skewed. You don't have the sort of the incentive. With S&P earnings, management teams have an incentive to make earnings look as good as they can within the confines of the accounting standards. But having said that, there's some wiggle room within those account, within those standards. Any equity analyst, which I was for a long time, will tell you you need to look really closely at how the accounting standards are applied. So, you know, I think NIPA data is, is something that we should look closely at. It's something that we here in our asset allocation process have been looking at recently to just sort of understand where we're at in the earnings cycle for the U.S. overall. 
Okay, so having just given my sales pitch for why Nippa is so fantastic, uh, <laughs> I wasn't really getting that's very helpful though. It's it's fantastic, but <laughs> for a statistician, I mean, like all this data gets revised. We just had the revision to the jobs numbers for the last eighteen months or so. As you mentioned, GDP got revised again, so things haven't been looking as rosy as possible. So it's good that at least there's a corroboration of the Nippa profits too, kind of arguing the same thing, right? It's that divergence you'd be very concerned about. Exactly, exactly, and we've seen it. NIPA profits actually, on a pre-tax basis, NIPA profits actually rolled over in the third quarter of 14, 2014, and have, on a pre-tax basis, NIPA profits, they rolled over and they have not started to improve yet. So that would sort of tell you that we're kind of late in the cycle from an earnings standpoint. Now, the tax cuts that really took effect at the end of 2017, but really, really impacted corporate earnings in 2018. The tax cuts lifted after-tax earnings and got them just back to where they were in 2014. Isn't that a positive attribute, though? I mean, isn't really – it's after-tax that really matters, right, at the end of the day? After-tax is what matters. But We wouldn't have had this recovery without the tax cuts is what you're trying to imply there, right? Right. But when we all sit around and talk about where the economy is at for asset allocation purposes, it's actually – I think it's very important for us to recognize that for the economy as a whole, profits – two businesses peaked in 14 and are down, depending on which segment of the economy, anywhere from kind of mid-single digits to mid-teens off of those highs. And the only thing that's helped profits over that time period has been the tax cuts. So that gives us some conclusions about the economy. It doesn't speak to the CAPE ratio or to equity valuation, but I think it gives us some insights into the economy. So getting back to your question on Siegel, though, so Siegel really suggests that we use NIPA instead of S&P 500. I don't think the theory behind that makes a tremendous amount of sense, and it's really kind of an apples to oranges type of issue. NIPA is looking at the whole economy, not just the publicly traded universe, not just the S&P 500. So you're really, again, you're comparing to use the earnings for the overall economy to value the S&P 500 doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think there's even another nuance to that. The NIPA numbers are an aggregate number. This is all companies in the US economy, their earnings were X. Pick a number out of $2 trillion on a pre-tax basis last quarter on an, annual, you know, on a, on an annualized basis. S&P 500 is a per share because the fact when you invest in a publicly traded company, you get diluted by share issuance and companies has, have to raise capital and you get anti-dilution through share buybacks, but you're investing on a per share basis. You're not investing on an aggregate basis. So again, it's just an apples to oranges comparison. Well, I, maybe you could infer that with S&P profits increasing and your NIPA being off the highs, but you could probably argue two things. One is things outside the S&P haven't done as well. And maybe, indeed, all these private companies, they're just burning through cash or distorting the NIPA number. I wouldn't say it's distorting. I did say it, but I want to retract the distortion. What you're saying is it's making it go down. Right. It's influencing. It's having, having some sort of influence on the numbers. So I think what you're saying is it's a better measure from an economic toolkit and maybe not as much from a financial valuation standpoint. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing that we noticed is – if, in fact, these accounting changes, one of the first one was in 1994 and the other two were in the early aughts, if these accounting changes were distorting the numbers, you would expect the divergence between NIPA profits and S&P profits 
to have widened out after those came into effect. And in fact, the dot-com period and the global financial crisis, S&P earnings did diverge from NIPA profits by a wider margin than historically was the case. But the period where they diverged by the most was the early 90s recession, which was before the accounting changes came in, right? So the explanation doesn't really completely make sense historically. Well, as they say in marketing, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. So before we end here too, before we jump to Mr. Lau's favorite part of the show, we obviously have a product around here that uses the CAPE ratio to help make those sector decisions in the sector rotation. And again, this earnings roll off that had taken place from the financial crisis, what are you seeing in the CAPE ratios or the relative CAPE ratios the various sectors of the S&P 500 today, and what's been impacted through this earnings roll-off from the earnings from the financial crisis. So the methodologies that we use here in our strategies look at the CAPE ratios for each of the 11 sectors of the S&P 500 and use those to rotate sectors, to really select sectors of the S&P 500, or in the case of, of a European strategy, sectors of the MSCI Europe, and identify those that on a CAPE ratio basis represent relative the greatest relative value. The methodologies do this by comparing that current CAPE ratio, which is looking at 10 years worth of earnings, to the trailing 20-year average CAPE ratio for each of those sectors. The conclusion of that is telling you that of the sectors of the market, which ones represent sources of relative value against their own history and which ones are relatively expensive. Kind of to use the language that we used earlier, it's in, what it's really doing is saying which of the sectors have really the most attractive, prospective, forward-looking return potential relative to history. In the U.S. one, what we've seen is it's really an interesting mix of actually traditional value into sectors and some more growthy sectors. So the ones that look on a CAPE ratio basis cheap against their own history, you have materials. Recently, materials has been one of the cheaper ones, kind of a traditional value sector. Energy as well, kind of a traditional value sector. Healthcare also, but then a couple of traditional kind of growthier sectors like technology and communications, uh, communication services. So, you know, I think it, it really kind of illustrates the robustness of the CAPE ratio methodology. In this case, it's recognizing that different sectors have, for very good reasons, can have very different forward-looking prospective return characteristics based on growth potential and volatility of earnings. The example would be utilities probably should have a lower forward-looking return expectations because it's a less risky sector. It's kind of finance, again, finance 101, while technology should have higher forward-looking return expectations. Say that another way should trade at higher CAPE ratios. Yeah, so you did a very good job explaining all that and dodging my question. So I'll repeat the question again, just to make sure that you get the answer in there, is what sectors were impacted the most by this roll-off? Because we talked about aggregate already. So were there any sectors that you saw there being some big adjustment to in their CAPE and respective relative CAPE ratios versus others due to the roll-off from the financial crisis. Yeah. Biggest example would be financial services. That was the, I wasn't dodging your question, financial services, that was the epicenter of the global financial crisis. Now, look, it was a deep recession. It brought down a lot of different, impacted a lot of different industries from an earnings standpoint. But financials were hit the greatest. The fact is, though, on a relative CAPE ratio basis, relative to the 20-year average CAPE ratio for financial services, which encompasses 
right, encompasses the boom times of the aughts, of the housing boom and the finance boom leading up to the global financial crisis. So kind of an outlier for the finance industry to the upside. And then the global financial crisis, which was obviously a deep recession. You encompass all of that. And financial services have been consistently in recent years, one of the most expensive sectors on a relative CAPE ratio basis. It was that way before the financial crisis earnings rolled out. Now that they've started to roll out of the numbers, financial services remain one of the most expensive sectors. I think that's pretty interesting. I think a lot of people wouldn't guess that. They would think, oh, now now maybe it's looking that the earnings are much better and therefore the valuation should be lower. And so it makes financials look cheap. But you're saying it really hasn't done much to it. That's really the smoothing mechanism of having longer time periods and pulling these things together. Exactly. That is a great illustration of the strength of this methodology. Yeah, I think that's a good way to talk about why you like it so much. So, yeah. All right, Brent. Well, we're running out of time here. Thanks for the update on the equity markets and talking about the CAPE ratio. Is there anything you want to say about the equity markets before you leave? You want to give us how you're looking at earnings right now or thinking about earnings looking out a year? understanding of all the economic data we have, going to have an election in roughly uh, 14 months. How's it look for prospective earnings at this stage? So narrowing our window from the 10-year worth of earnings that you look at with CAPE to more of a one, you know, a contemporaneous one-year look, earnings basically rolled over in the third quarter of last year. So NIPA rolled over in the third quarter of 14, reported S&P earnings rolled over in the third quarter of 2018. We've now had two quarters where year-over-year earnings growth has, in fact, been negative, which means that first quarter and the second quarters of 2019, S&P earnings were lower than they were a year ago. That reflects both a weak top line. We've seen the revenues for companies. That is still growing. That's still positive year-over-year, but it's at a lower rate. And I think that you're seeing a lot of the benefit of the tax cuts that really helped corporations in 2018, essentially that benefit is kind of getting competed away. In theory, you would expect this to happen over time. Your tax rate falls, you get an immediate benefit to earnings. But then what happens over time is you need to start passing some of that on to your employees, right? Because your competitors are able to bid up the cost of workers. You have to give some to your employees. You have to give some back to your customers, again, for competitive reasons. So I think you're seeing some of that being bid away. You're seeing the revenue a little weaker on the top line. We got this little trade war that some people may have heard about in the news going on. So you put all that together and it's with a kind of a narrower window, you know, probably going to end up with a negative earnings year this year. First two quarters were negative, third quarter estimates now look negative, and that probably rolls through to the fourth. And this comes back to the divergence that we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, but last time we had a profit recession, I'll define the profit recession to be, let's say, two consecutive quarters of earnings decline or profitability declining. Last time we had it, it was through the period of 15 and 60, of part of 16. I think it was five or six consecutive quarters of negative growth. That was really due to the energy sector, the collapse there in the earnings. And in aggregate, it really was hampering that significantly. Is it concentrated somewhere in one of the sectors or a couple of sectors today? Or is this really just a true U.S. slowdown in terms of profitability? This is much broader based. You're seeing actually technology. Technology is being hit fairly hard. 
but at the same time, commodity sector earnings, energy and energy and, and materials, those earnings are also pretty weak. It all kind of sounds like global slowdown to me. Those when you see Exa- those exa- Well, yeah, exactly. It's broad-based. And then, boy, look at the consumer staples companies. Look at the classic consumer packaged goods companies, which you those are supposed to be kind of your rocks. Those are supposed to be your steady eddies when the economy slows. Those are the ones that you can count on to deliver stable earnings and nice dividends. Results out of that sector have been pretty rugged recently. So it looks like more of a broad-based slowdown. And I think to roll back the clock a little bit, those NIPA profits are telling you that that 2014 earnings recession, the, the earnings recession that started in 2014, that yeah, that started in the energy sector, started in the energy patch, but that kind of rolled through the whole economy and, and hasn't the whole economy, again, talking about those NIPA earnings, had never really fully rebounded from that the way that narrow piece or the way the S&P portion of the economy rebounded. All right. With that, I'm looking over at Sam and he's getting a little fidgety here. I think he wants to move on to Sherman Says. So Sam, take it away. Sherman says, Brent, and what happens here is I'll give you a term and you'll deliver a top of mind response and I'll alternate between Sherman first and then back to you. So Sherman, R&B or CMY? Seven. U.S. large cap? Expensive. IMF? Argentina. Tariffs? Up. Gold? Up. Yields? I'll give you a clue. It's not up. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'd say flashing red light. Germany. Troubled. Recession, U.S. Eventually. The robots. Unimpressed. Nickname. (laughs) Our brand. Is that a letter R or our Brent, like Our Lady, like Notre Dame? Well, so you know my real first name is Robert. So it's R. Brent, but the nickname is O-U-R, Our our Brent. So you're like Notre Dame. Well, that's Our Lady, but Our Brent. Okay. Right. I'll have to figure out which one's which there. So all right, my Latin's bad. Anyway, all right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Brent, thanks again for coming by. It was great to get an update on the equity markets. And as always, you can catch us at Double Line's website. You can download the podcast. We are on iTunes. We just applied for Stitcher, so you should have that out there now. We got Spotify. We got Google Play. We're getting more and more. So if you have a favorite place you listen to podcasts, let us know. You can reach out to us at ShermanShow at DoubleLine.com. That's one word, ShermanShow at DoubleLine.com. And Sam will answer all of your emails. Tune in soon for the next episode. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.